0: Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering a special discount on a digital subscription to the Washington Post. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com/offer. From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from
2: The Post. Am I catching up? President Trump, how are you?
1: Hi, it's Robert Gibbon at The
0: Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 19th. Today, a United Nations report on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the money behind today's anti-vax movement, and a ban on
2: sexist ads. She said it was a premeditated extrajudicial killing that possibly involved torture as well. And violated not only norms, but international laws against torture and human rights abuses. That's Carol Morello. And I'm a diplomatic correspondent. I cover the State Department. On Wednesday, the
0: United Nations released a new report, a 101-page independent
2: investigation by human rights expert Agnes Calamard. She was tasked several months ago with conducting an inquiry into what happened with Jamal Khashoggi when he was killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul last October this is far more definitive than anything else that has come out so far. It is an independent investigation, and it is certainly not the final word. Her mandate was to look at human rights abuses, not to conduct a criminal investigation. So in her findings, she held the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia... Uh, responsible for some degree of culpability in Khashoggi's killing, but she did not address individual responsibility, though she did say there was sufficient evidence to su- suggest there should be a criminal investigation of higher levels, including the Crown Prince.
0: After the report came out, Carol spoke to Calamard on the phone in Geneva. And they talked about the evidence that led Kalamar to conclude that the Saudi government may have had orders from a very senior official to kill Khashoggi, who was a columnist for The Post.
3: The killing implicates the state of Saudi Arabia. Now, with regard to individual responsibilities, I am saying that there is sufficient evidence To demand uh, an international criminal investigation into the responsibilities of high level officials, including the Crown Prince. The evidence I am pointing out is first related to the legal nature of responsibilities of high level officials. The international media and international community has tended to focus heavily on who ordered the crime. What I am pointing out to in my report is the fact that when it comes to uh, senior level officials, other forms of responsibility can also lead to criminal liability. Well, you talk about an international
2: investigation. The Saudis have said that an international investigation would be an infringement on their sovereignty and cast doubt on the impartiality of their judiciary. Are you thinking this should be done by the United Nations, by the United States, by the European Union, some combination? Who should do this
3: investigation? I am calling uh, in my report for a follow-up criminal investigation at the level of the uh, United Nations, which I think is the best-equipped to do so. However, I am not, of course, ruling out the uh, possibility for the United States to do such inquiry, such investigation. In my view, the U.S. have a stake in the killing of Mr. Khashoggi, in my view, as well embodied He was a resident of the United States. He was looking to establish a longer-term residency in the United States. So the U.S. has many reasons to pursue the matter, and I certainly invite them to do so.
2: Well, in your report, you characterize the Saudi response to the prosecution as timid. What do you think about the U.S. response so far?
3: Ambiguous, conflicted, and so on and so forth. Congress and the U.S. Senate has certainly uh, acted on the findings that were made available to them. At the highest level of, of the U.S. government, there has not been an equal uh, determination to hold to account the state of Saudi Arabia, although there has been a number of steps taken by the United States. In fact, it was one of the first state to impose targeted sanctions against, uh, I believe, 17 individuals. So it's not as if the U.S. has not taken any steps. I will, however, qualify those steps as insufficient, and I will suggest that steps taken by other states were also insufficient. I want to ask you about the timing. Do you
2: think the timing of this report is bad given that there are these rising tensions between the United States and Iran right now and Saudi Arabia is considered by the administration to be a key ally in its campaign against Iran? Is it realistic to think that anything can be done during a crisis like this?
3: You know, my my recommendations are related to targeted killings. They are related to ensuring that a key ally of the United States and indeed of a range of other countries behave in a way which is commensurate with the support uh, and the attention it is receiving from many countries in Europe, in the Middle East and elsewhere, that Saudi Arabia must demonstrate that it is acting in such a way to make that alliance, and that support, reliable, a credible, forward-looking strategy by failing to take credible actions regarding the crime committed against Mr. Khashoggi, by failing to demonstrate non-repetition, which is extremely important, I think The state of Saudi Arabia is demonstrating that it may not be a reliable partner. I will certainly suggest that reliability must be based on respect for international law, including international human rights law. Whenever a state fails to do so, whenever a state uh, violates international law as the state of Saudi Arabia has done, I think um, it is. Uh, it should send some very worrying signs and red flags to the rest of the international community.
2: Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Today, after this report was published, you got on the phone with Agnes Calamard to talk about it and to talk about some of the big takeaways from her investigation. And Calamard also found out some new details about the moments that transpired leading up to Jamal Khashoggi's death.
2: What did she say? Yeah, some of it's pretty grisly. There's conversation 13 minutes before he comes in where two individuals, two Saudis, are talking about, you know, what is going to happen and what may happen. Uh, she was allowed to listen to the uh, at least 45 minutes or so of audio tapes that the Turks had collected out of several hours. It was really just a small portion of the total. And some of the quality of the sound was not very good, but she was able to hear them discussing what would happen. And one of them was a senior official with the consul, and the other one was kind of egging him along. They were talking about dismembering the body, and this was 13 minutes before he came in. Then at the point where Khashoggi came in, he clearly felt that something was amiss. He said he would indeed plan to go back to Saudi Arabia someday. And they seemed to talk about it more as if they wanted him to believe that they were there to kidnap him. When it was clear from the conversation 13 minutes earlier that they had already been talking about dismembering his body.
0: So from this part of the recording that Calamard heard, that kind of pushes the idea that this was premeditated, that this wasn't just an altercation that that happened unexpectedly within the consulate.
2: Yes, that's true. And she said as much back in February when she released her preliminary findings. And there was nothing today in the report that was released today that is anything different.
3: One
0: of the big questions that has been hanging over Jamal Khashoggi's death is the involvement of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and whether or not he had direct knowledge of what was going to happen or whether or not he ordered it. Where did where did Calamard come down on that?
2: Well, on the one hand, she said there was no smoking gun necessarily leading to him. On the other hand, she noted he has a long history of repressing dissidents and being involved, being a necessary cog in the machinery to repress dissidents in Saudi Arabia. And she said it was, it defies credulity to think that he wasn't at the very least aware that plans were being made to have some sort of a criminal mission. Go from Saudi Arabia to Turkey to target Jamal Khashoggi. So, at the very least, uh, she said he has to have been aware, and that he might be his involvement might be much deeper and broader than that as well. So, she doesn't say that. She says that is that needs to be done by a special UN investigation uh, is what she's calling for a criminal investigation that looks at that very question.
0: So now that you've read this report and talked to Agnes Calamart about it, how does all this information either complicate or advance your understanding of, of what happened?
2: Well, I think it makes it a lot clearer, but it certainly complicates things politically for governments of the world, particularly the Trump administration. You know, this is coming at a time when tensions are rising with Iran and Saudi Arabia is considered by the administration to be a key ally in the campaign against Iran. The Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Trump himself have made it very clear That while they deplore what happened and, you know, it, it was a gruesome, grisly death and a terrible thing that happened and someone should be held responsible, they also have made it clear that they don't think that U.S. relationships with Saudi Arabia should suffer as a result of this. They consider it too important for oil and the Middle East peace plan. You know, the Crown Prince Mohammed is close to Jared Kushner. They talk all the time. He's a key component in an effort to get the Middle East peace plan off the ground, if it ever does. And they say the U.S.-Saudi relationship has been going on for so many decades, and it is so important and vital at this particular point of time that even the death of a man who was a resident of the United States is not enough to really harm it in any way.
0: Carol Morello is a diplomatic correspondent covering the State Department for The Post.
1: This movement is diverse. You do have earnest parents who are confused, who are looking into this thing of, I don't want to have anything injected that's not natural in my child. But it also includes individuals who are very savvy and who are targeting their videos, their social messaging, documentaries, At vulnerable communities. Lena's Sun has been covering the growing measles outbreak in the U.S. I'm a health reporter on the national staff of The Washington Post.
0: And lately, Lena and our colleague Amy Britton have been following this alarming trend around the country. Advocates who are opposed to vaccines. Groups who advocate against things like MMR shots, which would prevent the spread of measles. Parents. We're crying out, saying the MMR vaccine destroyed my child's life. They've been warning us. have been trying to tell the world, along with many parents around the world, about how the MMR vaccine is unsafe for so many. These anti-vaxxer stories are not based in science, but they've still found ways to convince a lot of
1: parents. What many of these groups will do is say, look at the vaccine insert. Right here. Now, this package insert is from and. Here are all the possible adverse reactions. And then down here in the adverse events reported
0: during post-approval use of Tripedia vaccine
1: include,
0: and you can see over here, SIDS,
1: and then boom, autism. All right, folks, now this is... Part of their messaging relies on bombarding you with a lot of scientific-sounding information and studies that sort of cherry-pick one or two partially true things, and wrap it around this other broader fear of you are injecting your child with 72 vaccines. And it makes you hesitate. Would everybody with a
0: vaccine-injured family member just please stand up right now, just
1: for a moment. It's quite insidious because then you feel like you're being listened to, you're part of a group, there's a support group. You are the real heroes. And when you post on Facebook with any kind of question... First people who jump on are other people who tell you, you're fine, don't vaccinate, you'll be fine. And given the record level of measles outbreaks that we have, one of the things that keeps popping up is who is funding these groups? Where is their money coming from? Because some of them travel around the country. They're in Sacramento one day, Colorado the next day, in New York, in Brooklyn. Where does the money come from? And so that was basically the origin of, of the reporting. So what did you find out? So we focused on this one group called Informed Consent Action Network, ICANN, which was founded in 2016. That's headed by a guy named Del Bigtree.
0: Okay, great. So we got Del Bigtree here joining us, who... I guess you were the producer of the movie I was the Vax- producer of the movie Vaxed, from Cover Up to Catastrophe. Yeah.
1: So He okay, has been very so- prominent. He has been flying around the country, testifying before state legislatures, holding rallies. So I really wanted to know, where is he getting his money? And we looked in the IRS tax documents. His group is a 501c3, does not pay taxes. It's a public charity. And it showed that in 2017, he got over a million dollars. Whoa. And who's giving him this money? The people giving him this money are a quiet, wealthy New York City couple. The man is named Bernard Sells. His wife is Lisa He is a hedge fund manager, and the two of them are big philanthropists. Their foundation is a private foundation, the Sells Foundation. It has something like $149 million in assets. And they give to the arts and museums and to other charities, lots of sort of traditional philanthropic things. But about seven years ago, they took up a different cause. They started to give money to anti vex groups. And over seven years, they have given over $3 million.
0: $3 million? Mm -hmm.
1: Tax filings also show that Del Bigtree's salary was $146,000 in 2016. And he was previously unpaid by the charity the year before. Del Bigtrees refused to tell us where he gets his money from. And on his filings, financial filings, he doesn't say where the money comes from. Dell Big Trees Group is not required to say or file where they get the money from. They are required to report their revenue. We only found that out by looking at the grants that are listed on the Seldes Foundation.
0: What do we know about why this couple is so interested in donating
1: all this money to anti vaxxers? Well, that is the big unknown. And we spent some time trying to figure out the why and the how. We definitely know the what, and we definitely know the impact. We called friends. We called family members. Bernard Seltz has a reputation on Wall Street for being an astute investor. He is 79. His wife is 68. She is his second wife, and they are involved in lots of things, community college, very active in the philanthropic world. But you do not see them in any way, in any public way, linked to the anti-vax groups. And Lisa Seltz is the president of Del Bigtree's group. She's president of the group in 2017. Mm-hmm. You would not know that, however, unless you read the IRS forms. It's not on the website. And I don't know why. That's not clear to us. We tried to find out, but we couldn't. What we do know is that In 2012, they made a $200,000 contribution to Andrew Wakefield, and he is the former British doctor who wrote the paper in 1998 claiming that vaccines were linked to autism in eight children. But an investigation by Britain's General Medical Council, which regulates doctors, later found that he was guilty of professional misconduct, and they revoked his license the panel concluded that he had financial and ethical conflicts of interest and that he had acted, quote, dishonestly and irresponsibly. So starting in 2012, the Sells Foundation started giving money to Andrew Wakefield's a foundation he set up to help with his legal defense in a defamation lawsuit. And then as he set up more tax exempt charities, the Sells Foundation was also giving to those outfits. And it was through working with Andrew Wakefield, that Del Bigtree, came on the scene. He eventually formed this other group, ICANN.
0: So we don't know why they're doing this, but the fact that they've donated so much money to the anti-vax movement, what kind of effect has that had?
1: With this money, they are able to fund mostly all the work at Del Big Trees group.
0: We're about to live in a country where they're going to line American citizens up at least once a year and force inject you with unknown product.
1: So the Seltz Foundation has provided more than three-fourths of the funding for his three-year-old charity that basically works to weaken state vaccination requirements and it sues health agencies. Every politician that you don't keep in check, that you let pass mandatory vaccine laws, that's where this is going. Basically, without this money, I don't think his organization would exist. He's able to use that to do all the work, and a lot of that is messaging across social media platforms. You are going to be lined up. When you have that message out in social media, whether it's the vaxxed movie that he helped make in 2016 that alleges a government conspiracy to cover up vaccine problems, or his video broadcasts what other product is being forced into you what that you is picked up and people see that on their facebook feed or on their instagram and it becomes normalized and it's part of the social conversation and fabric
0: this is the beginning of a forced injection program take the word back So as you were reporting all of this you reached out to the Celt's family as well as Dell Bigtree and Andrew Wakefield the former doctor what did they have to say about this
1: We reached out to all those parties multiple times, by telephone and by email. Andrew Wakefield has denied repeatedly any wrongdoing, and he said he was motivated by children's suffering. In Brooklyn earlier this spring, he specifically said that he was never involved in scientific fraud. The Seltzes never responded to our queries, multiple queries, by email and by phone. Del Big Tree, he said that he does not want to talk about who funds him or who gives him donations. He has said that he stands by what his statements are and that they're backed up by science, and that people who are accusing him of misinformation have to show him what is wrong. He often says that he doesn't spread misinformation, that he is giving people missed information. And in fact, Dell Bigtree had an interview with me last month, and he said that measles is not serious. And at one point, he told me he would be ecstatic if his two unvaccinated children, ages 5 and 10, got sick.
0: We've seen how this kind of anti-vax propaganda has created a really significant public health problem. And we've seen outbreaks of, of measles all over the country. Is there anything that authorities or the CDC or anyone else can do to try to combat either the, the the products of all this money that is being funneled into these groups or stop the money from reaching these groups in the first place?
1: So in the United States, if you want to donate to a charity, you know, you're free to do so. The laws governing the donations are very broad. and You say if it's for educational purposes, it's totally fine. What health authorities are trying to do is to combat the misinformation with their own information. And I think they're beginning to realize that you can't just have a scientist go stand up there in a white coat and say, believe us, the science is good you know you have to be you have to understand where parents are coming from they are confused they go on the internet and the first thing they read is like hmm why does little johnny have to get so many shots so it's it's kind of intuitive that they would feel that way but science and health professionals in particular have to understand where the parents are coming from. And now they are finally beginning to do that. They have, for example, a group of Orthodox Jewish nurses who are going door to door in Brooklyn and meeting in small groups with these women and showing them the studies because a lot of them, they didn't know. They just knew what what they read on the internet or in pamphlets that were distributed by anti-vax groups that looked very scientific.
0: So public health officials are trying to find ways to combat this propaganda. But at the end of the day, if wealthy people want to spend their money giving all this money to these organizations, making highly produced videos and movies and media about how vaccinations are
1: hurting children, they can continue to do so. Yes. And I think there's something else that we should remember Now that people see measles and there are unfortunately people getting sick, we're past a thousand cases. Statistics show that when you reach that level of cases, one or two children are going to die of respiratory or neurological conditions. And part of the reason that the anti-vax movement has been able to be strong in this country is we don't remember what those diseases looked like anymore. So part of it is the outbreak is making people realize, you know, this is actually a serious disease. And the other thing is lawmakers are paying attention. In New York, in the course of one day, state lawmakers passed a bill to make it harder for parents to opt their kids out of getting vaccinations for religious reasons. So when public officials take these actions and parents have to vaccinate their children for the public good, I think that that is going to be a countervailing force against people who are pushing these anti-vaccine ideas. But I think doctors and public health officials Have to come at this in a way that you are not shaming people, you are not talking down to them. You really have to understand where they're coming from and address their hesitancy in that way. Lena
0: Sun is a national reporter covering health for the Post.
4: So there was a very controversial ad a couple of years ago that was blanketed all over the London subway system.
0: Rachel Siegel is a national business reporter for The Post.
4: It showed a skin and bones model, her lips pursed, she's looking right at you, she's in a teeny tiny yellow bikini, and behind her are these big, bold capital letters, Are You beach body Ready? And the ad was peddling a weight loss product.
0: This ad about being beach body ready is now banned in Britain. The Advertising Standards Authority announced last week that it will no longer allow ads depicting harmful gender
4: stereotypes. And that extends to bad body image, ads that promote tasks that are seen to be more specific to females over males. So for example, you can no longer put in an ad that shows men who can't change diapers or women who can't park a car. There's definitely a spectrum of the types of ads that would be banned in the UK. Perfect. No.
1: Sorry, could we just have a look at that one?
4: For example, a supermarket ad would be caught under this umbrella. The supermarket ad shows a mom hurriedly getting ready for Christmas. She's picking out the tree, she's putting together Christmas cards, she's cooking, she's cleaning. Quick, quick, in the car! Without a whole lot of help from her husband or or anyone else and... The slogan for the ad is something like... It doesn't just happen by magic. Behind every great Christmas, there's mum, And behind mum, there's Asta. What's for tea, love? And that ad would be banned because it shows tasks that seem to only fit a female or a mom and not necessarily her husband or a man. Another ad that would be caught under this umbrella is an ad for a video game that shows the actress Kate Upton. The thing about empires, the bigger you build them, who appears to be very seductive and beautiful as she's riding out of this castle that's under siege on a horse.
0: The more your enemies want to knock them down.
4: It shows her in this position of power, but in a way that definitely links the way she appears to having that sort of control over the army that's descending on this castle.
0: Do you want to come and play?
4: It's hard to tell how they're going to enforce the ban specifically. The agency that's in charge of overseeing the standards for their advertisements said that they would look into questionable ads on a case-by-case basis, but it's hard to think about how you practically enforce a rule like this when there's such a spectrum of what different factions of society might say, this is a stereotype, or this is just what is occurring in everyday life, and that has yet to be worked out.
0: Rachel Siegel is a national business reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.